We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Each week I have a different witness who discusses what makes their life meaningful. And one of the common answers is nature. It got me thinking about what we're doing to look after this precious resource of meaning for so many people. So when I came across a book called The Joyful Environmentalist, I knew I should invite her onto my podcast. Isabel Lazada is an author, a public speaker, and has worked as an actress, a broadcaster, and a comedian. As well as the environment, she's written about her search for both enlightenment and paradise in Battersea Park Road to Enlightenment and Battersea Park Road to Paradise. She's not just the joyful environmentalist, she has form on using joy to try and change the world in her book For Tibet with Love, where she ended up meeting the Dalai Lama. So I think I have to actually start off by asking you, what exactly is joy for you? Because it's obviously something really quite important. Oh gosh, it's a really interesting question, isn't it, Andrew? How do we define joy? You talk about my, my search for enlightenment. Years ago, I did one of those woo-woo new age seminars, you know, where you discover your purpose in life. And we went through this process and I discovered that according to this seminar, my, my purpose in life is quite simple. My purpose is joy. That was, that was what I discovered. So that's been quite an easy one to follow. And I suppose joy for me is a sort of energized version of happiness isn't it? I mean, I think something that something that makes you joyful, it makes you both happy and enthusiastic. Energy plus vitality plus happiness plus goodness, really. I think it's those it, it things, is more, isn't it? It is more than just having a good time. There seems to be some kind of cheerful optimism put into it as well. Yes. Actually, now that you mention it, there is an optimistic aspect of joy, isn't there? It's a bit like happiness. There can be different ways that you can define it. You can have a temporary joyful state as when somebody brings you a fantastic birthday cake. But it's interesting, even in that moment, if you put your finger on the joy in that moment, I recently had a birthday and a friend brought me an amazing cake. That's why it's in my mind. Mm. The, the joy is more from the connection with the, with the friend rather than the cake itself. The joy comes from the moment, doesn't it? And the, and the connection. And so I think joy is a... It's a state where optimism occurs naturally, isn't it? Arising from the circumstances. And I think something you say there is really interesting. It's also somewhere where you can use for self-discovery. You actually went into the joy of that moment. What was it about the cake? Actually, part of it was, you know, that it was a beautiful cake, but actually the joy made you pay attention to the connection between you and your friend. And that's actually where the real joy yes, was. So exactly. I think joy is a gateway to self-discovery. At least that's what I'm thinking, looking into your work. I suppose it can be a gateway, but it can also be a result of doing something, of knowing yourself, of having discovered yourself sufficiently to know what gives you joy. For example, one of my hobbies is Japanese taiko drumming. I know it might sound crazy, but I was in New York and there was a group of Japanese taiko drummers by the road and they gave a demonstration. And then when they finished, they said, does anyone want to have a go? My hand was up in a second. And I went forward and they gave me uh, Japanese taiko drumsticks, the ones you do with these huge long drumsticks, big thick drumsticks, and you raise it right in the air and you bring the drum down and it makes this fantastic sound that vibrates through your body. And I thought, 
this is something I want to do. I mean, I felt the joy of the moment in an instant. And I came back to London to look for a Taiko teacher. And it took me seven years to find someone that teaches in London. But it is a joyful thing. And, and you, I think you, you feel that instantly. Or somebody that, you know, really has learned how to play music or somebody that loves a, a sport. Or So it can also be the result of rewarding yourself with doing something that you know gives you joy. And I think you've just reinforced the point. When you feel joy, don't just feel it, actually investigate it, actually see what it is that is working for you, pursue it, even if it takes you seven years to find the teacher. <laughs> yes. That joy is making you pay attention. This drumming is going to be good. And I have to agree with you. I have been to workshops where you just drum on a, with your hands. With your hands. On a, That's also wonderful. And it is just the most extraordinary experience. Yes. You can see we've probably been to the same kind of places, particularly around a campfire. Yes, because then you've also got the connection that we're talking about, haven't you, that we mentioned with the cake. You've got the connection with the other people there. So a joy obviously is greater if you're sharing it with another person or with another or with an animal even. So I think, yes, happiness plus energy. I'd define it like that. <laughs> so let me give you a quote from the beginning of The Joyful Environmentalist. We all want to do what we can to make a difference, but it's a bit overwhelming and we're busy, which seems <laughs> to sum up the problem we have in a nutshell. So what can we do? <laughs> well, that's why I wrote the book, Andrew. Exactly. So give us the benefit of your research and your experience. Oh, my goodness. I'd been reading books about the environment for two years before I wrote The Joy of Environmentalist because I care passionately, as we all do, about the state of the planet, about the biodiversity, the loss of species, the climate, the pollution, etc., etc., etc. But the, <laughs> a lot of these books, the writers feel obliged in a very conscientious way in the first three chapters of the book to tell you just how bad the state is. <laughs> so they go into the details of the horrors of climate change and just what's going to happen and just how many species we're losing. And by the time you've got through the introductory three chapters, you know, you're ready to kill yourself. So the opening line of my book is, so what I'm doing is this. I'm assuming that we all know how bad it is now. We don't need to be told yet again about, you know, what the bad state the climate's in. And because all my previous books have been on the subject of happiness and joy, what I did is I thought, well, okay, let's look at what we can do that helps the planet, that also brings in this joy, brings in this happiness. Because a lot of the things that we need to do to help the world also enrich our own lives. So to take a very simple example, I mean, that the whole book is full of this and the book is full of short chapters and long chapters. So lots and lots and lots of ideas. It's written in a funny, entertaining way. I also joke that I think it's the only book about the environment that's ever been written that actually stands a chance of making you laugh, which of course is a <laughs> blessed relief. But to take one example I point out in the book is that if we don't wish to invest in fossil fuel industry anymore because we want to help the planet, one thing we can do is change our high street bank. Now, I've been with the same high street bank my whole life because we're all loyal to our high street bank because we think somehow it does us good to be with the same bank we've been with for 30 years. But what I did is I wrote to my bank and I said, can you let me know what you're lending your money to and what you're investing in? And because I rather naughtily told them I was writing an article for The Guardian, they put a lot of, <laughs> it was obviously a lot of to and froing. And about two weeks later, they wrote back. Basically, they said, I'm sorry, this is, information is not in the public domain. And then they wrote me a load of gobbledygook about ring fencing and, you know, 
it's, it's just, and anyway, so then I looked up banks in a list in the ethical consumer and they gave me the top of the most ethical bank is Triodos Bank in the UK. So I wrote to Triodos and I say, can you let me know who you lend money to and what you invest in? And they said, yes, all the details of all the companies we invest in are on this link here, press here, and you can look at them all. I'm like, right, well, okay. So we have one bank that's being transparent and one bank that isn't, one bank that's lending money to the arms industry and the big pharma and possibly all the things that people don't believe in. I mean, you could be a nurse deeply committed to public health and be paying for the new private wing down the road. You could be a committed vegan that believes in, you know, love for animals and you could be giving money to the new puppy farm that's doing vivisection down the road. You could be giving money to arms industry. You've got just no idea if you're with a high street bank. So I swapped. <laughs> simple as that. It was fantastically simple. And now I'm with a bank that for the first time in my life, I feel proud of my bank. And someone said to me when I did a radio program, well, changing your bank account, that doesn't feel very joyful. And I'm like, on the contrary, because for the first time in my life, I'm with a bank that supports my values and I'm proud of my bank. And so likewise, I looked in the book, I look at my energy provider, I went off to interview the people that provide the energy on my house, that's in there. So I'm with a company called Good Energy, I interviewed Juliet Davenport, the CEO, and I asked her all the questions that you'd want to ask a CEO, you know, if you could interview the head of your energy provider. I speak to Guy Watson at Riverford, the head of Riverford, because he provides my food, and I ask him all the questions that you'd want to ask about the food, where your food comes from. So I go through every aspect of my life, what I wear, you know, how I travel, everything that we do basically, and how that impacts on the environment and how we can make changes that enrich our life and also help the planet. Does that answer your question? Most definitely so. I mean, you start your journey getting very angry about (laughs) plastic in a in a whole food kind of uh, shop. So, I mean, it's not all sort of interviewing people. It's actually standing oh, no, no, up no. for yourself in public as well, isn't it? The book has all kinds of it. It has interviews, it has stories. I mean, one of the wonderful sections is I go off to Scotland and I spend a week replanting the Caledonian forest with a charity called Trees for Life UK. And as I say to them up there, you know, in, in London, we plant one tree and we think, you know, that's it, we've saved the world. We have a party if you plant one tree. Whereas there's a group of about 10 of us, we spent about 10 days up in the highlands, planting trees all day, every day for a week. And as I say in the book, you know, if you're fit enough, then it's the most wonderful week's volunteering that you could ever hope to do. And there's something so profoundly, profoundly joyful, to use that word again, about putting a little tree in the ground and knowing that 200 years from now, there'll be berries and birds and, you know, we'll be long in our graves and yet that tree will be there. It's the most joyfully moving thing to do for a week and just to look at it and to think how it will look. So there's all kinds of things. That little bit right at the beginning of the book where I'm in Whole Foods complaining about the fact that they insist on giving me a plastic fork is just me really making fun of myself about the absurdity of the world that we live in, that they wouldn't give me a metal fork to eat my lunch. <laughs> they do do it now though, if you ask nicely. Do you ever feel embarrassed? No. <laughs> Well, because I don't care, you see, anymore, Andrew. I don't care what people think of me. I was talking the other day to someone who had a presentation to do and they were talking about how nervous they get and how subconscious they get before presenting before an audience. And I'm like, I genuinely don't care what people think of me. Because if I'm speaking in front of an audience, my main desire is to give them like 23 things that they can do to save the planet or whatever book I'm talking about, like my last book about sexuality, 23 things that they can do to improve your sex life. I can tell you, once you've written a book about sex, there's nothing about talking about the planet that's ever going to embarrass you. So no, I don't. Because it's not it's not about me, ultimately. I'm there to communicate a piece of information. And so it's not that I even need to get my ego out of the way. It's, it's just not relevant. If someone who's listening to this is thinking, well, she sounds an obnoxious, opinionated, blah, 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 blah. 
I don't really mind if they think that. But if they go out and buy the Joyful Environmentalist and then they end up, for example, going out and deciding they, it's time they bought a compost bin for the garden, my job is done. You know, I can die in peace. They bought a compost bin. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I get I get emails going, I read your book and I bought a compost bin and I'm like, that's it. You know, that's fantastic. They're actually going to be composting their vegetables for the first time in their life. I mean, that fills me with joy and excitement. So and you can it, die a happy about, woman. I can die a happy woman. It's not about me, you know. And if I can make someone laugh, I can die a happy woman too. I mean, I'm just interested in the work that gets you to the point that you don't care what people think, because I think most of us are held back by that fear of, oh my God, I'm going to upset people. They're going to think I'm a dot, 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 <laughs> fill in your own particular fear. I think possibly, Andrew, having me to drama school helped because, you know, when mm-hmm. you've had 10 years of rejection every week and you're judged on your this elusive thing that they call talent, <laughs> you know, you walk in the room and someone's already decided how much talent you've got before you've even opened your mouth. And so you learn very soon as an actress that that is bollocks. Because whatever it is you've got to offer is obviously not what they want. There can be a hundred people auditioning for the same part. You can go and you can do absolutely the best audition of your life. And you know that you've absolutely aced it. And then you don't get it because they decide they want to cast someone who's blonde. So or shorter or taller. Or shorter or taller or, or who's related to their uncle. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so basically you end up thinking, well, I am what I am. I've got to offer what I've got to offer. And also in my case, the message really is so much more important than me. And I suppose there's a certain vulnerability in that. You know, when I'm standing on stage in front of, you know, a hundred people talking about sexuality, that is obviously far more vulnerable than talking about the environment. But I mean, again, it, it really wasn't about me. I wanted to communicate certain things to the audience. Ironically, people end up admiring you for that. Because when someone comes on stage and is desperately nervous, and they're thinking, oh, you know, I hope they're going to like me. Me, 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 me. I mean, why does it matter? We'll be dead soon. I am what I am, and this is what I've got to offer. I just love that statement. And we don't need an identikit person that's going to appeal to everybody. We just need you. Yes. I mean, someone might not like you, Andrew, but nevertheless, you've got good information to impart to people. Again, funnily enough, talking of weird woo-woo seminars that we've been in in the past in an attempt to learn more about happiness and wholeness and personal human growth and things. I mean, I learned years ago that, you know, if you go to a lecture and it's boring, sit through the lecture, but make sure if there's one piece of valuable information in it, get it doesn't matter if the lecture is annoying. So likewise, this podcast, I mean, there might be one thing that we say in this podcast that might be valuable for a listener. And I challenge you, listener, listen up, because there might be one thing, hopefully, that we might say that might be genuinely helpful. So pay attention to get that. Even if Andrew and I are the two most boring people that you've ever heard, there might be one thing that we've stumbled on that might be useful for you. And that's my hope for the listener, that we can communicate information that is useful, that is helpful, that is valuable, that can bring value, that can bring joy, that can bring freedom, all those things. I'm interested in this confidence because when I did my research about you and I discovered that... (laughs) You've been researching me, Anna. I have been what researching have you, found? you. Please let me know. <laughs> Maybe it's something interesting. I don't know. <laughs> I've been through your bins. Ooh. I've been standing outside the door. <laughs> what did you find? <laughs> well, this is what I discovered in my research, was that basically you were an orphan at an incredibly young age. You had virtually no family. And by the age of 19, you were alone. That, to me, sounds absolutely terrifying. And yet here we have this incredibly confident person. And I'm just interested in how do you survive when everything's chopped away like that? 
Okay, I think there's two answers to that. I think, first of all, to give credit to my late mother and my late grandmother, all these people that believe that, you know, you have to have two parents, one of each sex. fascinates me when those arguments come out about adoption, that it's not okay to have two people of the same sex raising a child. I'm like, but excuse me, I had my mother and my grandmother raise me and nobody ever suggested that there was an inadequacy there. You know, I had two women that absolutely adored me. And as I joke, they let me know that I was the centre of the universe and anything I could have was mine. And my grandmother traditional role was to spoil me and she spoiled me. What has been amazing for me, Andrew, is as I've grown up, the shock with which things don't fall into my lap. <laughs> it's like I- it's like, I want to do something and like the world doesn't listen. It's like, for goodness sake. And a solid belief that you're utterly lovable can also come as a shock because if you're, because uh, obviously you meet people that for one reason or another don't agree. You're like, but what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? You know, I'm fantastic. So no, joking aside, I think I was really lucky in that I was loved as a child in the formative years by two women that by the time my mother died when I was 18 and my grandmother died when I was 19, they'd spent 18 years letting me know that I was lovable, clever, beautiful, the most beautiful girl in the world, to quote my grandmother, exactly. You know, those kind of things. So I think they say that the the first six years are very formative and I was very fortunate in those first six years. I didn't experience any trauma. I lived by the sea, you know, I played in the gardens. I had, you know, I had in many ways a happy childhood. It was a lonely childhood because I was an only child and I, you know, I didn't have any else. But you see, I think that made me a writer, interestingly. So if we get to adulthood, I think because my mother died and then my grandmother died and then I made a disastrous marriage, obviously, because (laughs) I was filling the gap left over from those deaths. And then my husband left me and then I was on my own with a two and a half year old, which is where the first book starts. But I think what I did is realising that I had to look after myself. That became a lifetime's interest in everything that's good, in happiness, in reading, in music that was enriching, in reading books, in attending seminars. And and I think that's the Battersea Park Road to Enlightenment was about me going anywhere and learning anything I could, anywhere I could go that would help, that would give me tools, that would enable me to thrive. And so that's why when I look at what some people spend their time doing, it amazes me. Like they go and they watch deeply disturbing murder films where people are hacked to death or they're, they're watching. It's like, why would you want to put stuff like that in your mind? I mean, is life not hard enough? Why would they want to kill themselves off with smoking cigarettes in a vain attempt to comfort themselves with something that obviously isn't comforting? There are wonderful things that are worthy of our time and our study. And I think that became my interest. And there's a lot of good stuff out there that can be learned. I mean, sure, these wacky seminars, you know, 50% of what's there might be nonsense, but the other 50% is valuable. Focus, I think, is the answer. I've focused on everything that is good. And you've found, for want of a better word, this is a Buddhist phrase I've heard before. I don't know if you've heard this. There's an exercise where you give thanks to all your mothers. And the oh, idea yes, is yeah. that we have many mothers. So you had two mothers. You had your mother and your grandmother. When I did this exercise, one of my mother's best friends I listed as one of my mothers because, you know, she was around the whole time. Um, and, um, you know, I'm welling up a little bit, you know, she's Aww. now... She won't tell me how old she is, but she must be mid-90s, I would would be my guess. We do have quite a lot of mothers, and it sounds like, in a sense, you've had some of that parenting energy from other sort of mentors and other people, or maybe not. Not so much. Not so much. No, no. no. I wanted to write in the beginning of of Bassey Park Road to Enlightenment, and I would like to give thanks to Isabel, without whose perseverance and determination this book would never have been possible. I mean, 
it's perfectly okay to disagree with me. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm thinking about what, what you're saying. Yes, when I was 19, there were, when my mother died, there was another lady who stepped in very kindly and took care of me, I suppose, in some ways until I met my husband. But really, the person that I've really learned to rely on is myself in the true way that all self-development work is about. We've got ourselves at the end of the day, haven't we? It's not that other people are not going to help, but they're struggling with themselves. There have not been many people that I've been able to depend on in that way, no. Being an only child and not having family at all, most people tend to look after their families first. And when you don't have one, it's very important to find your strength, as they say, you know, in all the great spiritual traditions, you just find your strength within, as it were. And there is nobody else who's going to come along and solve all our problems. And Sadly. If you know anyone, Andrew, can you put them in touch with me? <laughs> You know, half of great literature is about either somebody coming along to save us or somebody coming along. We think they're going to save us and they don't. Of course. I mean, I have had people when, you know, I've given them some of these books that talk about that there isn't somebody else who's going to come and save you. You know, they might help you. They might point you down the right road. Yes. They might say, you know, there's a bog behind here. Don't go in it. But um, you're ultimately on your own. I think sometimes it's a very depressing message. But they say, well, actually, it's not so depressing because you can then roll up your sleeves and start sorting things out yourself. I remember the first time I did a, a wacky New Age American seminar, and I really loved the seminar because we were learning so much. But when it got right to the end of the seminar, the message was basically about, you know, learning to love yourself. And I remember being utterly furious because I remember going, oh God, what her again? For goodness sake, I've been living with her all my life. That's where this whole seminar is leading, that I've got to work on my relationship with myself. I mean, come on. But uh, yes, that's reality, sadly. What do you say now to the version of yourself that went to that workshop and got upset at the very okay, end? Yeah, it, it sucks, doesn't it? It's just, it sucks. <laughs> Suck it up. It's true. You've got to work on your relationship with yourself. <laughs> Be compassionate with yourself, even when you're absolutely furious. <laughs> I was more furious that the seminar was leading to, I suppose, something already I already knew. You know, something I wanted them to come up with something else. <laughs> other than that truth that we already know. So one of the things I liked that you offered was 10 things you need to change the world. And with that, by extension, your own life. Well, you know, one of them was lock up your television in a cupboard, which amused me. I've got some uh, slightly different ones. You said one of the things you need is selective deafness. Why do you need selective deafness? Well, because this is England. And anything that you say that you're going to do 20 people are going to come along and tell you why it won't work. That's the nature of being British. So you need to not be able to hear the word no. I mean, you know, if you're in America and you say you're going to do something, you're going to write a book, everyone goes, yay, fantastic, you know, good on you, blah, 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 blah. Over here they go, well, do you know how many books are published every day? And, you know, it's a terrible thing and, you know, you're never going to be able to sell it. And, you know, if you want to have a crazy plan like Noah, and you want to just go for it and you know it's crazy, you want to do something extraordinary or you want to do something huge, obviously everyone's going to tell you why you can't achieve it. So that's why you need selective deafness. You need to be listening again for the two or three things that people say that are helpful. And you need unconditional love for others. Now, I love that idea. 
Why do you need unconditional love for others to change the world? Well, it's one of the tools I've always worked with. I mean, I suppose one of my origins, I'm now an atheist, but I was a Christian for many years. And in Christianity, they teach you to look for the image of Christ in someone and love it. You know, and as I joke in the book, you know, sometimes the image of Christ is pretty damn hard to find in people. But, you know, if you dig deeply enough... You know, you can usually find a core of something that is worth loving. And I, I'm very much a great believer in giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, in just being kind to everybody all the time, despite their failings. For example, I hate this new trendy word that people use to dismiss others. They describe a person as toxic. I wince when I hear that. Mm. And I always say, I called a friend on it the other day and I said, excuse me, I just as a word person, as an author, please chemicals are toxic. People are not toxic in my mind. People are damaged. People are very damaged. And people think that they have the right to dismiss another human being as toxic. They don't think someone else might be dismissing them as toxic because of various behaviours that people display. We are very damaged. And of course, people are fantastically damaged. And I'm not saying that some people are not dangerous because they're so damaged. But even then, I believe in giving everyone the benefit of the doubt and doing the damnedest we can to be compassionate and loving to everyone all the time. It's very, very difficult. It doesn't mean you have to let your boundaries down, does it? You know, you can say, you know, I'm aware that this person might be dangerous. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, but I'm not going to allow them to come and live in my house, for example. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But be kind. You can keep your distance if necessary, but still be kind, I would say. And an unbalanced sense of (laughs) humour. That that made me laugh that you need to change the world and change your life. You need an unbalanced sense of humour. Well, because you need to find humour in everything. That's the way I've lived. I had an aunt as well as a mother, that, as well as a grandmother that died, a mother that died. I had an aunt that died. I, I was chatting to her on her deathbed. You're very careless with these relatives, that's all I, I can know, say. I know, I know, I know. It's very inconsiderate of them all, I think. You know, you've got a lady that you love. She's in her 90s and she's had the decency to still be alive. And I've got three aunts that are 180 and I've got two over 90. How I mean, wonderful, how wonderful. Well, it's very nice of them to have stuck around. It I think. is. But anyway, I was talking to my late aunt on her deathbed and I said to her, well, Auntie Terry, at least you never lost your marbles. And she said, no, I didn't, did I, Sarah? (laughs) And it took me a second. And then I realised she's 10 minutes from death and she's still making jokes. You know, (laughs) and I thought, well, good on you, you know. What a wonderful way to go. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, and also I've explored humour as a writer, you know, humour in everything. And when I was writing for Tibet with Love, I was reading a book about the Tibetan monks being tortured in China, you know, speaking to some of them in Dharamasala, where the His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives. And I interviewed a couple of these people who've been tortured over many years and they're cracking jokes. And I'm thinking, sheesh, well, if they can do black humour at that level then I can put it in my book because I can just take the lead from them. I mean, I would have hesitated to make jokes about torture, but I thought, well, if they can, I can. So, Mm. and I think it's important that we keep humour in everything because again, life is short. And yes, humour is important. And the other two things that you put on the list, one we've mentioned already, and the other is persistence, joy and persistence. And you repeat yourself, (laughs) persistence and joy, joy and persistence. Those are the two keys for anyone listening who's looking for life keys, joy and persistence have given me every single thing I've had in my life. I don't believe I've had anything that I've asked for once. So anything, Mm. 
that I've asked for. I mean, like I made a video once including quotes from all the rejection letters of my first book. Again, it's very funny because there's about 20 rejection letters and they all contradict each other and they all say something totally different. You know, it's too long, it's too short, it has too much information, it doesn't have enough information, blah, 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 blah. And I just kept going. I just keep going. I just keep going. I mean, I think it's pissed some people off, but you say no to me and I just go away and I bang on the door again. It's a story, actually. Again, it's interesting. We're coming back to my Christian teachings twice. That there's a story that Jesus tells about a corrupt judge. And there's a corrupt judge. This is a New Testament story he tells. And there's a corrupt judge. And he's given a, a corrupt judgment on someone. So the person who's angry goes to the judge's door and he bangs on the door every night. And he says, give me justice. Give me justice. And the judge gets his servants to send them away. And he goes back the following night. And he says, give me justice. Give me justice. Judge says, send him away. He goes back. Give me justice. Give me justice. Anyway, the story goes on. Eventually, the judge says, for God's sake, give the man justice. Just get him to stop banging on the door. And that's a story that Jesus tells. And I really taken that to heart. I found that it's necessary to ask more than once, to show perseverance, to persevere with whatever it is you want in life. Just go on asking. And I suppose this maybe goes back to my childhood when I say that my mother and my grandmother let me believe that my desires were worthy of attention. So when someone says, no, you can't have that, I'm like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Of course I can. So I just go on asking. And of course, of course, I've had rejections. And of course, but joy and persistence are two of my key tools in life. And I'm sitting here thinking about the two together, because I think if you had persistence and anger, then I think that would be very, very different. It you'd have an ulcer. feels very dark, doesn't <laughs> yes, it? You'd, ha- you'd have an ulcer if you, if you had persistence and anger. The joy is telling you this is something you truly want to do, that uh, deep down this book needed to be written. And so you wrote it and you kept going until you actually sold it. Well, in the case of the first one, the one we're talking about here, because that was the one with the maximum number of rejection letters, although I consequently had rejection letters from all sorts of other books as well. And it's interesting and because I had 18 rejection letters from basically every single London publishing company telling me for various reasons that this book would never be published. And yet I had a complete conviction that it would be something that people would want to read because it made people laugh. It was happy. It's joyful. The number of letters I've had about the joyful environmentalist saying, thank God, something I can read about the environment that is enjoyable to read. You're talking about people helping us. We need people that can make us laugh, don't we? And I talk about, you know, I can die happy because someone has bought a compost bin because of my book. I also think, you know, I can die happy because a book's translated into Russian and one morning travelling to work, somebody laughed because of something I wrote. I mean, that means a lot to me, you know, that I can make smiles somewhere. So let's have some other things beyond buying a compost bin that is going to (laughs) leave you dying a happy woman. I think you need to give us a few more suggestions. Please, what I'd really love you to do, all of you listening, including you, Andrew, I would love you to go out and buy one copy of The Joyful Environmentalist. I promise you will not regret it because it's funny and it's useful. And within that book, there are many, 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 many suggestions as to things that you can do. There's changing your bank account, there's changing your energy provider, there's thinking about your food, there's thinking about what clothes you wear, why you buy them, the supply chains of the clothes that you wear, how you can do that to support the environment, how you garden to support the environment, how you holiday, how you volunteer, how you travel, basically every aspect of my life, you know, I look at and I examine and I think, well, okay, how do I do this in a way that benefits the environment? Because life is short and the planet is in trouble and we need to change the way we live radically, radically. 
We all need to make radical changes to the way that we're living. It's important. And, you know, species are dying every day and we go on doing all the things that we do. We need to live differently, but we need to do it in a way that is also joyful, that supports our lives, because life is short. Simple as that, really. So the book is just full of suggestions and stories and lists and, you know, and it's a very easy read. I know people read less and less because, as I say, people are busy. Everyone's busy. So you need things that are short, easy to do. I mean, that section that I was telling you about, about banking, it's two pages long. I write to my bank, then I write to Triodos, then I say, okay, if you're banking with these people, they might be doing this. If you're banking with this person, you know they're not. Boom, two pages. And then people can decide if they're going to change and if they're not going to change. You know, and I was recently doing a poll on Facebook because I'm doing an interview. I'm doing a podcast, funnily enough, tomorrow with Good Energy about Triodos, because Good Energy has a podcast series about ways that we can change the world, and they're looking at Triodos. So I've been writing to people on Facebook saying, did you read the book? If so, did you change to Triodos? If so, if not, why not? You know. But that's just one of the things. That's every aspect of the way we live, really, Andrew. <laughs> the Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of joining the Meaningful Life podcast is you can actually use the collective wisdom of myself and my guests. And, you know, we've been to some very interesting workshops. Very weird workshops. Weird woo-woo workshops. So this letter is from a man. He says, thanks for listening to your podcast and all your guests. I've come to two conclusions. The first is that I need to find my purpose, but I have no idea what it might be. The second is that I need to bring more joy into my life. But how do you turn that into a path? How do I know it is the right one? I'm in my early 60s and I feel I don't have much time left for more false starts. I also have made more than my share of mistakes, and I still have work to do on repairing the relationship with my youngest daughter. My other problem is that life stinks at the moment. I'm exhausted, run down, and if I'm honest, quite angry. I feel that I've worked hard for lots of other people and given my all, but it seems like give, 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 and nothing back in return. I can feel myself getting into a rant, which I know will not help, so it looks like I've found a little bit of insight. I would sort of like someone to go on this journey with, a partner. Is that too much to ask? Now, normally when I send letters to my witnesses to think about, I never hear any of their thoughts, but Isabel did something entirely different and she sat down and wrote a letter back. So I thought it would be very good to hear what Isabel had to say. Dear man, let me save you some time. I've put a lifetime into considering these questions, so I'm in a good position to do so. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that the purpose of life is happiness. As he is considered to be an incarnation of compassion and has spent his life studying Buddhism, I think we can take his word for this. If you don't like this one, Jesus, also considered wise by many, said love. And for a third answer, know thyself was on the temple at Delphi. So your path, as is true for all of us, is, as you say, to bring more happiness and joy into your life. When you are doing that, you will have reserves of happiness and joy that you will be able to share with others, including your daughter. At the moment, you say that your cup is full of exhaustion and anger. Your words also contain resentment and a sense of injustice. You say that you've given and given and given. 
and got nothing back, but you are blaming the other and not showing much insight of personal responsibility there, it seems. Not in this short letter anyway. Then you want to offer an exhausted, angry person for a relationship. Well, I don't know you, but these are certainly not energies that I'd want to welcome into my life. When you, when <laughs> Hold on, let me finish. Friend, you need to fill your life with joy first, and then you will be able to offer not a life that stinks, your words, not mine, but a life that is attractive and inspiring. Why would I be attracted by a stink? It's a beautiful, fresh, natural perfume that will attract a beautiful partner. But don't be sad, for this is a joyful path you can commit to. Study all that brings you joy. And I have a few tips here too. Simplicity will lessen exhaustion. Live simply. As William Morris advised, have nothing in your home that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. Eat simply, very little or no meat. Get up at the same time every day. Look after your health. Walking is good. Connect with nature as much as you can in any way that you can. Read beautiful, inspiring books. Listen to beautiful music. Learn to cook simple, tasty food. Learn meditation. Anger is just a protection for sadness. Learn to sit with the sadness. Have compassion for yourself, but don't allow self-pity. There is a difference. It's good that you know how to give to others, but you can learn how to give from a full cup. You have been giving from an empty cup. Mm. Be patient with yourself. Do simple tasks an hour at a time. Whatever is beautiful, whatever is good, think about these things. You don't have to be perfect to have a partner. But you know the old saying, it's not a question of finding the right person. It's a question of being the right person. So you need to become someone that you'd want to be in a relationship with. You have to learn to be in relationship with yourself in a way that is joyful. Create a life for yourself that is joyful and in which you're happy. Then when you wake up one morning and find yourself feeling happy alone, you will be ready to look for someone to share that with. I wish you joy, happiness and love. Mm. Thank you for that. There's a, a lot of material in there. I'm quite harsh. I'm quite harsh. But I mean, you know, my life's a stink. Well, wow, I can't wait to meet him. Well, I was going to say that <laughs> stinky and angry is not what you put in the search engine, is it, when you're looking for dates? No, I want someone that feels broken, that feels that they've given and given and given and got nothing back, three gives, and whose life they feel stinks and who presumably wants me to come along and, as we were saying earlier, help sort all that out. Especially, I mean, depending on what kind of relationship he's looking for. I mean, to be fair to this man, maybe he'd be very happy to meet a very broken woman who feels that her life is stinky. And what he's saying, to be fair to him, is that he'd like to share that path of recovery with someone else. But that wouldn't be easy because then two people would both be looking for the other one to help them sort their shit out. And it doesn't work like that. That's codependency. And it doesn't work, as we know. I once read a very interesting phrase from a wise man, and he said there's two fundamental questions for every man. I think probably we could extend it to every woman, but that's what we're talking about. Mm. The two questions is, where am I going and who will go with me? And if you get those questions the wrong way round, then you can have some really big problems. So if you know where you're going and you know you can invite somebody to come on the journey with you, putting it literally, do you want to go to Tibet? Yes, come along with me. But if you just yes. say, I want to find somebody, 
they will probably want to go to Manchester. And Manchester might not be where you want to go. So it's much better to know, where am I going before asking the question, who will go with me? It's very interesting that you've raised that, Andrew, because I mean, I've got several girlfriends. We're, you know, we all play with Hinge. I'm single at the moment. And one of the questions on Hinge is, you know, what is a cause that you believe in? And it's a question that very few people choose as the question that they ask. But I mean, this man says that he lacks a path. I mean, has he not noticed the state of the world? Is there a lack of causes (laughs) out there that need passionate engagement? I mean, be an environmentalist and say, I'm passionate about saving the rainforest. I'm passionate about sustainable farming. I'm passionate about rewilding. I'm passionate about homelessness. I'm passionate about immigration. And if he's passionately engaged in those causes in doing something, then he's going to meet someone there that is also passionate about that. And he's joyfully engaged in that, even though it's hard. But it doesn't have to be a cause. It could be something like the drumming. That What's the kind of drumming that you do? <laughs> taiko drumming. Well, I wouldn't taiko recommend drumming. taiko drumming as a way of meeting people. But no, but if that is if that is your path to become a great taiko drummer, then that is your path. It doesn't have to be just a cause. I think is what I'm saying. It could be a passion. Well, it doesn't have to be a cause. But Andrew, if people are not engaged with the state, the way the world is in, if people aren't engaged in anything outside themselves that attempts to make the world a better place then they're not someone I'm going to want to be on a path with, because frankly, the world's in a mess. Yes, but maybe you and he are not not a, a good match. Okay, okay. But what I'm saying is having some commitment to something outside oneself is certainly, as you say, it's all very well saying, you know, all right, I want to go to Manchester, but then I'd go, well, okay, what are you going to do when you get to Manchester? I'm not saying that I'm only looking for fighting eco warriors. I'm just saying that a sense of purpose, surely people also get a sense of purpose through contribution, through what they can contribute to the world. I mean, this man, as he says, he's been giving and giving and giving, but I think he's been giving, as I say, from an empty cup rather than from a full cup. And if you don't know how to look after yourself, as this man appears not to know how to look after his own needs first or his own needs in a productive and positive way, then you end up feeling bitter, as he obviously does, because he feels he's given and not, and he's not learnt to establish that boundary of saying, well, actually, no, I'm not going to give this because you've kept on asking, you know, and so he's trained whoever he's giving to, to learn to take him for granted. I mean, you do see this actually with lots of men that want to please women. And let's face it, women are difficult creatures. <laughs> Wasn't it Freud who said he's, he'd been studying the female psyche for 30 years and he still hadn't answered the question, what do women want? It's a very famous question, isn't yes. it? So to this man, you know, he has my sympathy in some ways, but in another ways, you know, well, wake up. He, he's got some work to do. And I would uh, please send him, him a copy to... of my letter. <laughs> <laughs> then he can write I... a screaming, raging reply. Who the I'm, fuck I'm... do you think you are? Yes. And I would like him to think about his relationship with his youngest daughter as well. Just to listen to her. You don't have to do anything more than say, "Tell me more." Don't try and solve it. Just listen to her. Yes. There's a lovely expression. That girl needs a damn good listening to. <laughs> I love that one. So. We've been talking about changing the world and what makes life meaningful. So I think I have to ask you what makes your life meaningful, Isabel? Well, I thought about that. Obviously, listeners, this is a question that Andrew sends in advance, you know, what gives your life meaning? And I 
I mean, I think it's already apparent from this interview that what I love is, is the feeling of just having made a difference. I go back to that example of having made a, a woman in Russia laugh when she's on the Northern Line, you know, or when she's on the train going to work, or the fact that I get fantastic joy from the news that someone's bought a compost bin or someone's done anything in the book that I'm talking about. I mean, the book's not just a list of things to do, but there are lots of suggestions and people take them on board or you know, in my book about sexuality, there was a, a letter I had from an elderly woman whose intimacy and whose sex life with her partner, who'd previously been estranged, had completely been recovered as a result of reading the book. And so what gives my life meaning is knowing how short life is, being able to do anything for anyone, anytime, however small, that makes life better. It's as simple as that, really, being able to help others in any way, in any way. And I don't even need to meet them. It's not about me. It's about being able to pass on information that I've learned from all these weird and wonderful wacky seminars and reading and what I've done in my life and the various quests I've been on in my life, being able to pass on a good piece of information. Well, thank you very much for sharing your experiences and... (laughs) Are we done? And making me laugh. Well, we haven't. We're not done. Oh, good, because I'm enjoying this. We are done for <laughs> regular listeners, but for people who are supporters, we're going oh. to. This conversation is going to continue. We're going to find out the three things that Isabel knows to be true. What you want to do, Andrew, is you want to say in this section that you have to pay for. Then we're then going to discuss Isabel's book about sexuality, and then everyone will <laughs> everyone will be registering immediately. <laughs> Right. Well, I promise I will ask. I will ask a question about sex. Although I have whole episodes that discuss sex. Of course as well. you do. No, we're discussing the environment today. Looking back, there is a, an episode on how to have great sex after fifty, and we've also got an episode about body confidence and how to be how to be confident naked. I've got coming up an episode on how to be spiritual and sexual. Isabel is giving me a shoulder at the moment. <laughs> Moving her t-shirt. How to be confident naked. Fortunately, the camera's positioned sufficiently that I can move my t-shirt and appear to be sitting here naked. This isn't. You did I, say this wasn't envisioned, didn't you, Andrew? I did go. say it wasn't envisioned. So <laughs> all I can say is you have beautiful shoulders. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> so all of this conversation will continue in a moment. But for the for the, for everybody else, thank you, Isabel, for joining me today. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been delightful. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.